This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. It's the card they're playing right now because they don't have a whole lot else. And Dr. Kavita Patel. I am deeply more concerned in a way. Hello and welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we head into the midterms and what our leaders are saying or not saying and doing or not doing about them. Today, we have an incredible special guest, and we'll get to more of her detailed intro in a minute. I'm a big fan, Dr. Anna Greenberg, who's currently at GQR, but I know her as probably one of the most rigorous scientific, and I think pollster is a bit unfair because somehow that's become a very generic. It reminds me of when people talk about me as a provider, which technically is accurate, but there are many shades to that. And so I think of I'll call you Anna, Dr. Greenberg. I think of Anna as somebody who has been considerate of what really matters when voters think about issues that are top of mind, such as the ones we've been discussing on our podcast, domestic and global policy, but also hopefully giving us, as we get closer to those midterms, a bit of her sense of what matters and what's not being said in the conversation, because I think that's also important. Without further ado, I know that uh, there's much to be said in your biography. I love your Twitter kind of um, hashtag, or at least your descriptions, because you're you're a feminist and a mom. And I think that uh, there's so much of that that I is speaking to. I put myself in the same category. Norm is in the same category as well. Where I think a lot of us, <laughs> he is a feminist and a mom. He's been, he's he's been a mom to many of us at times uh, by giving us, I think what is the emotional and psychological side of what we have not considered in this country. The numbers tell us one thing, and then there is something that is emotionally happening in our, in our society. And I kind of just give us your overview, where you think we are heading into the midterms. We've had some very important primaries that have given us a little bit more flavor and some, for the Democrats, some tailwinds and some headwinds for the Republicans. But I also think that uh, as, as a former boss of mine used to say, uh, Ted Kennedy, like six weeks is still a long ways away from any election and a lot can happen between now and then. So we'd love to get your take. Norm, any other thoughts or considerations for one of our favorite people that we're excited to have as a guest today? Sure. And let me just first add some context. Anna is more than uh, a pollster, given that we use the term pollster so loosely. She is an academic. Uh, She has a PhD in political science from the University of Chicago. She taught at the Kennedy School. She knows public opinion research inside out as a scholar and as a practitioner. And so she's particularly well suited for what we want to discuss today. And it's first the landscape and what we know. And I actually put more weight on polling done for campaigns than I do polling done for media organizations because the campaigns have more at stake if they get it wrong and need to get it right, but also just the general state of polling. And before we started, we were venting a little bit, which we will do a little bit more here, about the fact that there are you can set up a shop without even putting out a shingle now that says you're a pollster. You can do something that is utterly shoddy and fly by night. You can do something that almost deliberately is distorted with a thumb on the scales and be pretty sure that major media organizations, if you time it right, are going to report it 
with no distinctions made about whether these are good or bad. And uh, there's a lot in the profession that needs work. So we might talk a little bit about that. And I hope educate our listeners and viewers about what to watch for as we especially get to this critical period. And you're going to be seeing polls every day. Thank you so much for, for having me. When I got the invitation, I got very excited because I've been so annoyed by so much of the conversation about polling. I thought, oh, I get an opportunity to say something about it. But it's a very kind introduction. I describe myself to a client the other day as a hack. So I'll take your uh, description uh, over, over that one. Look, I think it is a very tough cycle for Democrats. I think that the Dobbs decision changed the landscape as sort of an exogenous shock to the system um, in ways that, you know, not in terms of policy, but in terms of politics kind of helps Democrats. And so I think that has made the cycle more competitive for Democrats and, and more interesting because it is unprecedented, but it doesn't erase kind of the, the either the, the fundamentals which is, you know, when one party is in power and then you have the midterm, the, it's a referendum on the party in power. It doesn't erase the drag that inflation is, even with gas prices coming down and with a huge number of people thinking we're going to go into a recession. I have no idea if we are going to or not. And so I think we're looking at a really, really close election. Again, that's progress from a total wipeout, which is what I think many of us thought we were going to see earlier in the year. But it's still, when things are really close, as I said to someone, I could lose all my races. I could win all my races, you know, like it's, it's that close. Right. So I think uh, I don't think I'm going out on a limb here by saying that I think Democrats have a much better chance of keeping the Senate than the House. There's a very believable scenario in my mind where Democrats stay at 50 or with the vice president as the tie vote or 51. I think it's harder to get beyond that for a variety of reasons. I think the House is very hard to keep. If for no other reason that um, redistricting, even though it was not as bad for Democrats because there was so much incumbent protection work done by the Republicans and also because some demographic changes you just can't redistrict your way out of. Like in Texas, for example, uh, they got fewer, I think, seats out of that, that out of that redistricting than they wanted. Doesn't ever stop them from going and redoing it. For those of you who remember Tom DeLay, but regardless, it's just very difficult, just structurally difficult. That being said, you know, I think there's a big difference between losing majority by single digits or double digits and losing a majority by single digits going into a, into 2024, much easier to win it back than if you lose it by double digits. And so I think if Democrats lose the House, it will. what really matters is by how many seats, right? And I don't think you can have, there's no, there's no, in my view, no 2010 scenario or because there aren't, aren't enough seats to lose. You know, in 2006 and 2008, Democrats picked up a lot of seats that were fundamentally Republican seats, like Bush had won those those districts. And so and so only three people held on in 2010 in districts that McCain won. So these were, you know, they were basically Republican districts that were rented, you know, for uh, for a couple cycles. We have so few competitive seats now. There are so few people, either Republicans in seats that, Dem that Biden won or Democrats in seats that Trump won. There are so few left. That you can't lose 60 seats. <laughs> so, so I don't think you're, you know, even if it was the red wave scenario, I still think it would have been difficult to have those kinds of pickups. So, in my view, the most likely scenario is not likely. I, I the one scenario that I think is, is certainly possible is Democrats hold the Senate and uh, lose lose the House, and hopefully, because I'm a Democratic pollster, <laughs> by not very many seats, positioning Democrats in a presidential year. 
That being said, this all could be upended by a very important thing, which is turnout. And so we had historic turnout in 18 and we had historic turnout in 20. And there's some indication that we're going to have even historic turnout in 2022. Some people think perhaps perhaps higher than 2018. There's no turnout model. There's no sampling frame right now that is anticipating historic turnout. So everything could be wrong if we have historic turnout. And so there's no reason to believe we wouldn't. And there's some indications that we will. So if you look at the four special elections since Dobbs, they have been high turnout with Democratic overperformance. Mm -hmm. There's countervailing, you know, there's countervailing issues, like, for example, you know, the right, you know, between SLF and CLF just are massively outspending on the independent expenditure side on the, the Democrats, right? So, you know, some of this stuff may cancel each other out, but it it is possible that we have historically high turnout among Democrats and Republicans. And that's not a scenario where it's easy to predict what's going to happen because it hasn't really happened before. So that's my way of saying I could be wrong about everything because the thing about pollsters is we can't, just like everybody else, we can't predict turnout. We can only make our best guess of who we think is going to vote. We're not in charge of turnout. <laughs> so your polling is only as good as your assumptions are about who you should be talking to. And if there's a third wave of historic turnout that's even bigger than 2018, it's kind of hard to know what what that's going to mean for both sides. I mean, I'll say what I mean. Trump found an extra million votes between 2016 and, and 2020, and a lot of them were new voters. They were people who were eligible to vote in 16 who didn't. And so Democrats found a whole lot of new votes in 2018. A bunch of people who did who were eligible didn't vote in 16, voted in 2018. And so now with 2022, we have both parties having mobilized relatively new voters. I'm not talking about people who've newly registered. I mean, people who were not voting, who just started, started voting. So what happens? Do we have, are there even more new voters or is everybody who was activated in 1820 going to vote in 2022? Like these are the questions that are, are unknown. Can I ask uh, before Norm, before you ask a question, can I just, your comment about the kind of the new voters and then some of the research I had seen that had looked at for example, I think it was Kansas. I think there were just a handful of primaries and, and turnout. And obviously, n- not just new voters, but women who were either registered independents. Or Tell us what the science is around voters who might be registered one party vote another. Do we, do we understand a little more about that? And then, and then also very curious, because I come from a part of Texas where I have a kind of primarily Hispanic. And so there's obviously been a lot more kind of a push, I think, on the Republican Party to actually kind of really for a long time, but I would say even more so in the last several years to really get that sector Mm -hmm. to vote and to vote Republican. But tell me if that's supported by science and research. What do we know? Well, I'm not entirely sure I got your first question, but let me try to about answer. I think who what flips. I think what do we know about people who flip? There's, um, there's not flip. a lot of flipping. There's a change in composition, which is to say that the composition of the electorate in 2020 was different mm-hmm. than the electorate in 2016. So like mm-hmm. I said, Trump got a million new votes, right? Most of them were people who could have voted in 16 and didn't mm-hmm. and got mobilized. So that matters as much as anybody switching their vote. Similarly, in 2018, you had a whole bunch of new voters come and vote in 2018. They were people who were eligible to vote in the presidential, didn't. Trump won, Women's March. Oh my God, hair on fire. We got to go out and vote. Mm -hmm. So that's new people. If you look at the research on Virginia and New Jersey, which are pretty important bellwethers, but again, they both, those, both those elections were pre Dobbs decisions, but pre Dobbs, 
they're pretty important bellwethers. And what the research suggests, there's more of it on Virginia than New Jersey because New Jersey, they both had a 10 point shift, but because Murphy was reelected in New Jersey, people paid less attention to it, was that it was a combination of new people, which is to say people who were eligible in 2017 to vote in the gubernatorial and didn't, but had been activated during the Trump years. And so they voted in the 2021 gubernatorial. So there was an absolutely from the rural, small town, white, blue collar, those Trump folks were, were mobilized and had not voted, you know, in when, when, when Northam won in, in, uh, in 2017. But also it looks like there was some shifting away people who voted for Biden, who voted for Yunkin. So it's in that sense, it was some combination of new people and some people who had voted for Biden being willing to vote for Yunkin. I don't, by the way, think Yunkin's a great uh, example because he, while he's now campaigning with Kerry Lake, he ran as kind of a moderate. And so there are a lot of the Republican nominees now are, you know, versions of Trump. And so some more scary, some smarter, some dumber. Um, <laughs> but but they all, they're, they're MAGA, I guess would be the way, I, they're MAGA candidates. And Youngkin did not run as a MAGA candidate and, and was convincing, I would say, is not as a MAGA candidate. And so I don't know if that, if people, the, the Biden Youngkin voters will necessarily translate, Definitely. particularly mm-hmm. post-Dobbs. So it's really usually a combination of new people and some people switching, but partisanship is very ingrained and there's very little ticket splitting. And so it's, remember people talked about the Obama Trump voters. There were yeah. very few of them. Yeah. <laughs> so then that obviously follows any sort of um, racial or ethnicity breakdown as well. Same kind of principles apply. Right. And so, um, right. and that relates directly to the Hispanic vote because a lot of the new Hispanic voters, mm-hmm. the Hispanic women, interestingly mm-hmm. enough, who voted in 2020, voted for Trump. And so with the Hispanic vote, what you were seeing is a combination of new Hispanic voters, and they trended more conservative. They were mobilized by Trump, right? And then you've got some, we've seen Hispanic men become, the gender gap among Hispanic voters is enormous. And we've seen Hispanic men, you know, become more conservative. There's real geographic differences. So Hispanic voters in Colorado, Arizona, in particular in New Mexico, you know, are performing pretty democratically. It's Florida, Texas is different. Mm -hmm. So there are definitely some geographic differences on this. I want to dig more deeply into Dobbs. Okay. Because, uh, you know, a good part of the speculation is that this will motivate a lot of college-educated suburban voters, Mm -hmm. Republican voters, perhaps more women than men, but maybe both, to vote for Democrats. And some of the, at least, Conventional wisdom is that Democrats did well in the House in 2018 because they got enough of those voters in swing or competitive districts. So one question is, especially given the caveat that we don't see a whole lot of switches, is this an issue that could make that big difference and maybe a big difference in House and Senate campaigns? And the second is, is the enthusiasm factor that was so big when we first heard about Dobbs, when the decision first came down, when we saw the stunning result in Kansas, is that sustainable? Or will it be because it now, you know, time has passed us by, other things are happening, will other issues supplant it? So on your first question, I think there's a possibility of maybe some modest crossover, particularly depending on the Republican who's running so that there are some Republicans like Doug Mastriano, for example, 
who are going to be less acceptable to that 20 to 25 percent of the Republican yeah. Party that still considers itself moderate than other like I'm trying to think of someone, the, you know, Tiffany Smiley in Washington state. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's different candidates that present differently to Republicans. And so I think that there's the possibility of some shift in places where that Republican is candidate is very, um, very MAGA. Again, that's kind of the, the word I'm going to use to as an umbrella. But a lot of the shifting already happened. So you saw a huge shift between 16 and 18 among college educated voters. It was much bigger with college educated women than men, but you also saw it with men. And so college educated men have been pretty reliably Republican for a long, long time. And now what you're seeing is that in 2018 and 2020, that college men are actually, it's interesting, like I never thought in my polling memos that college men would be a target for us. Yeah. They are. Yeah. Right. And so they're split. They're generally split. And college women are anywhere from 60 to 70 percent voting Democratic. So there aren't that many left to get, if that makes sense. And that's mm -hmm. why I'm saying there could be some Republican women and men who vote for a Democratic House or Senate candidate, in part because the Republican running is so like Mastriano or Blake Masters or Herschel Walker is just so unacceptable that they are sort of overcut, even though they've stuck with the Republicans through Trump, they've now said no, but I don't think there'll be very much. I think the bigger issue, and this is your, to lead into your other question, is more about mobilization. And Dobbs, absolutely. We were doing focus groups with, Dem you know, with, with Democrats, pre-Dobbs, low propensity Democratic voters, and just really, really down on the party, down on Biden, down on Democrats. And, you know, I'm not suggesting that they're any more favorable now, but Dobbs created a new sense of urgency. And you see it in turnout in those special elections. You see it in turnout in non-competitive primaries. You know, in 2018, we saw high turnout in non-competitive primaries. And that was like an indicator that people just wanted to go out and do something. So even though, you know, you knew who was going to win the primary, you still went out and cast a vote because it just felt so important to be engaged and do something. And so in that sense, Dobbs, I think it's less that there's going to be Republicans who shift because that kind of already happened. It's not new information that Republicans are very far right and embrace conspiracy theories and all of those kinds of things that might turn off a moderate Republican. That has been true for four years. But it, I do think it has equalized the enthusiasm. And I think whether or not it's sustainable really depends on a bunch of things. It depends on the state. So there are certain states where there's now abortion bans and where I think you will see Democrats more motivated. Other states where it's still legal and will always be, you know, will be legal. It's a little harder to get folks kind of exercised about it because, you know, in their state, it's legal. It's also, you've got different Republicans running. So you've got, you've got, you know, unapologetic national ban, no exceptions, people running. That's going to be more motivating than somebody who's, you know, more moderate or trying to muddy their position on the issue. So I think the whole question of whether or not Dobbs sort of has an impact on turnout, I say the short answer is yes, we already see it. But I think it'll be somewhat dependent on where the race is and who the Democrats are running against. I can't help but ask because uh, it does, it's related to what Anna's been speaking to. Many of the themes we've covered just recently, Inflation Reduction Act, we've, co we've covered a number of what I would say are pretty big if you're wonkish. So therefore, probably everybody who listens to this podcast, but maybe <laughs> not as many people as we would like to listen to this podcast. You can see some of these like really 
you stackable domestic policy accomplishments. You can give them credit. You can give credit. I give a lot of credit, honestly, to Chuck Schumer for wrangling the Senate, but you can give credit across the board, including Biden. But Anna, I think sometimes I, we do a lot of like navel gazing, especially in, in D.C. Where, where we are, and we want to think that like logic appeals. Can you walk through, because I've tried to look through this literature and I am not an expert at kind of which of the methodologies are kind of the most supreme in some of these analyses, but what does compel voters? Is it something that is much more proximate? Is it an issue that is more proximate to like the voting day? Is it some of the things that I've tried when I do like knocking on the door and just reminding people? If you had to think about the meta-analysis and from my scientific world of what matters, mm-hmm. what do you think comes out? So for example, where should people put their attention? I think a lot of us feel helpless, right? We get these texts from Chuck Schumer, where I feel like he's talking to me personally, or Nancy Pelosi, but they really just want my money. That's fine. That's one way to help. What are other things that you have seen that can compel voters? We just talked about Dobbs. We talked about issues that matter. But what really does get someone who might be registered, might be inclined to even want to vote, but doesn't necessarily vote? And how could we turn them, you know, turn them into voters? If you're talking about what drives vote choice, that's different than what drives turnout. Right? Turnout. Sorry. Let me. No, that's so, okay. I mean, because vote choice is almost entirely driven by party. So right, right. there's very little, you know, once you get into a federal general election, there's very little that any can't, all the money can do. You're always talking about trying to move a race two or three points. Right. So you can spend, you know, $100 million uh-huh. will be spent or more in these Senate races and the race might change two points the entire year. So now in really close races, that matters a whole lot, right? So it's, I'm not suggesting, <laughs> and if one side, you know, it's kind of mutually assured destru- destruction. So if one side didn't ratchet up in relation to the other, you know, might probably lose. So I'm not suggesting campaigns don't matter, but partisanship really in terms of vote choice counts for about 75% of somebody's decision. So turnout is something that's extremely, you can't really affect turnout because it is driven by a few things. At the individual level, you know, it's very much there are, we know that people who have more education tend to be more likely um, to vote. Mm-hmm. So education is a big driver of registering mm-hmm. and voting. And, you know, also like community tradition. So for the Black community, kind of the historic uh, fight for the right to vote has meant that Black voters turn out in, you know, pretty high rates. Uh, I mean, mostly equal to white voters, depending on where you are, right? But there's really not a huge turnout difference in black and white voters. However, Hispanic voters are much less likely to turn out. And many Hispanic voters do not come from countries with a democratic tradition. And so, um, you know, you think the kind of the primacy of the vote as a way to make change in your personal life is not culturally something that you've been sort of raised with, right? There's kind of educational differences. There's cultural differences that all drive, you know, whether or not people vote. And then there's, you know, your family is your is a huge driver. If your parents are voters, you, you know, you're more likely to be a voter, right? So it's kind of a generational transmission of voting. So a lot of what goes into whether or not people vote has nothing to do with any kind of individual thing you can say to anybody. What people have found is that um, mobilizing people to vote requires a lot of personal interaction. That's expensive, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a lot of personal and reinforcement. So if you register somebody to vote, it's not enough just to register them. You've got to remind them. You, if it's a state where they can be signed up for vote by mail, you want to get them registered for vote by mail. So it's a very labor-intensive, expensive proposition to mm-hmm. register and get out new people. Most campaigns don't do it. It's usually done by kind of independent groups because just in terms of money, it is a very 
inefficient way to try to affect the election. So I'm not giving, I actually think it's very difficult to affect turnout, but you can, but it's labor intensive, right. it's personal contact. I'd say this final piece that there's been really important academic research done by Don Green and Alan Gerber about kind of social pressure. And that's very much become standard operating practice where you use kind of social pressure. So you, and there's various, there's negative social pressure and there's positive social pressure. Negative social pressure works the best. It's also kind of uh, offensive, but it's like, you know, it's public information who votes. So you could send a letter to someone that says all your neighbors voted. Are you going to be the one person who doesn't vote? That's actually a fairly effect. It's very intrusive and feel, I mean, it feels like a violation of privacy, but it's actually public information. It works. Votes. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So people get squeamish about it, but actually that negative social pressure stuff, or, or it says you didn't vote in the last election. Are you really not going to vote in this one? And so there are, there are those kinds of social pressure ways of trying to get people to vote also. Anna, just Alan Grover, it was, it was an interview with him written or, or aud- like auditory. I, ca- I can't remember which one, but he, it was exactly that. He kind of made me think, Maybe just me being deployed. I remember for the Obama campaign. I mean, we would just like land in, you know, random places, North Carolina, Virginia, kind of, you know, kind of battleground states. And we would just, you know, knock on the door and uh, listening to Alan kind of reading him over the, I, I really thought I would be far better to find somebody who's like kind of, you know, either respected, it doesn't need to be someone famous, but maybe it's a local teacher or it's just somebody who has like some name recognition. They own a business there or they're just, somebody that people know or somebody that lives in the neighborhood to kind of knock on doors because it just creates a stickiness. And it, it reminds me of many social networks and, and what we do in healthcare. I can't convince as a doctor to, for someone to stop smoking, but if someone mm-hmm. in their household or friend network stops smoking or loses mm-hmm. weight, they've got, you know, at least a three to 10% times more kind of uh, ratio. Of getting that. Anthony Downs, yeah. I'll go back to my academic way, Anthony Downs, personal influence. Mm-hmm. It really is, but you can't scale it. <laughs> yeah. No. And it's what, it's what, which David was it? It's Pluff. It's David Pluff. I think that was, I think what David Pluff had a book out literally like right at the onset of the pandemic. That was one of his key takeaways. And then the pandemic kind of uh, took away some of the noise from his book release, but that I won't forget that, you know, he said that like, that was one of their secrets was that they use data to inform like who had higher probabilities from you know, being a community activist, someone kind of a grassroots community activist that could mobilize the vote. And so I think that's, that's helpful. Just before we go, Anna, we have now a lot of political science research suggesting that the prime motivator is not simply party, but negative partisanship, mm-hmm. that it is much more now in this era of tribalism, trying to make sure that the evil people who are trying to destroy our way of life don't get any victories. And I can imagine that that is something that contributes to a Herschel Walker being at least within striking distance of winning, where in Georgia, a Senate seat in Georgia, where you, I don't think, could have a greater contrast between an extraordinarily qualified person who is a a star in the Senate and somebody who is manifestly unqualified for any position in public life, but he might still win. Mm-hmm. So just reflect for a moment on negative partisanship and maybe even add in what impact happens when you have a mainstream media that still tends to look on this as typical politics and normalizes abnormal behavior and thinks and, and frames it in strategic terms 
rather than in substantive right. terms. So how do you really feel about it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I would just add, you know, we talked a little bit about Glenn. What do you Youngkin. really think? Norm? What are you really saying? Norm? <laughs> we talked a little bit about Glenn Youngkin. It uh, drove me up a wall to watch the coverage by the Washington Post and other local uh-huh. papers around Washington, where it was pretty clear, his language aside, that Glenn Youngkin was a Trumpist through and through. And that's how he has performed as governor. But all of the discussion was about how clever he was that he could speak to different audiences and uh, and use different language instead of admitting that he was talking out of both sides of his mouth. Yeah. So I think it's hard to distinguish between partisanship and negative partisanship. I think polarization is probably the way I would talk about it more, which is to say that party Mm -hmm. is a very strong predictor of the vote. And the parties have become polarized, not just in the sense that both Democrats and Republicans have become, especially at the elite level, farther left and farther right than the electorate, mm-hmm. but have also self-sorted in who they interact with. So the big sort, who people live next to, who they're friends with. I mean, the only Facebook friends I have who are Republicans are my mom's relatives in Indiana. So, you know, like, so people sort themselves, right, by party and, and so that, and then you have the sorting of media. So that, you know, there was a certain sector of the country that only watches Fox or own or, you know, is on certain truth social and another that's watching MSNBC and, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So, like, I think that the polarization of the parties, there's an alienation and and an animosity because there's literally no social interaction. It's not just that there isn't political, there's no social interaction. And that's polarization. To me, negative partisanship is more about hating the other party. And thinking they're evil and bad. And so that's where like one place you can see negative partisanship is in presidential job approval. And while obviously Biden's approvals numbers are terrible and it's not helpful, I also don't think we're in an era where you could ever get above very much above 50 percent approval because there's no Republican who's going to say they approve of Biden. There was no Republican who was going to say they approved of Obama. And there's no Democrat who was going to say they approved of Trump. And so you just have a math problem. It's possible if there was something like a 9-11, it's possible, though I kind of doubt it, that you could get a rallying around like you did around Bush, where he had 80 percent approval. I think those days are over, even if there's something like that, because people are living in different information silos and in these friendship silos and, you know, even at work. Right. So that to me is like the negative partisanship is you can't even see the humanity of the other side, if that makes, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're related to each other, but I think they're different. They're, they're distinct. And the negative partisanship is a more, it's, it's been cultivated over many, many years deliberately. And, you know, put a plug in for my husband's book, The Destructionists, the 25 year crack up of the Republican party, um, where he, he talks about, you know, Gingrich and so much of what we see now in the way the parties operate we're the proverbial frog in a boiling pot, right? And so what we see now, which we're so, you know, we think about Vince Foster and the conspiracy theories. So, so, so much of what we see now in terms of the way partisans interact is deliberate. The vilification yeah. of the other side is not random. You know, it yeah. didn't just happen organically. It happened through a concerted effort, mostly from the right. Yes, there'll be Republicans who vote for Herschel Walker. I suspect he has CTE. Like, I don't think he's just unqualified. Like, I think there's something wrong. No. It is possible that he could win that race because Republicans are going to just vote for him no matter what, because they're Republicans and he's a Republican. And that's just what you and, and that the other side is evil and trying to destroy your life um, or life as you know it. That's certainly possible. Well, on that 
somewhat sobering note, which Sorry. is uh, alignment. No, it aligns. Honestly, I hate to say it, Anna, but you've definitely educated us, but you've also kind of confirmed some of, again, like drawing on some of your writing and teachings and other people who are similar, at least at just thoughtfulness over the years. I don't know if we're doing necessarily the right. I think that me just watching MSNBC is probably not necessarily moving any needles. It makes me feel better. Like I've got people who understand me. But if I'm really trying, maybe the only to, network you know, left for us since CNN yes, is firing all the people who are on the left. So CNN's going going the way of Fox, apparently. So it is. That is true. I have noticed that. We should. Okay. Well, let's do this because we have. Uh, we we certainly have more that we want to cover with you. We want to be respectful of your time and also want to be respectful of our listeners' time and just thank everyone for joining us. We're going to actually take some time to also plug and hopefully, if you enjoyed what you heard from our discussion with Dr. Greenberg you might consider becoming a member so that we can have a more extended conversation. And it would be really helpful if you could also share this show and even just to take away one or two of what you learned from listening with some of your friends on social media. And it's very easy to become a member of the DSR network. So you can get our bonus segment where we will hopefully get a little bit more into this conversation about the future of polling as a science and let Anna vent if she wants to (laughs) a little more but also maybe give us uh, just what she's looking out for, for 2024. And just speaking about the words that matter, both in the media coverage, and then what we're saying to our friends and neighbors. We want to thank everyone uh, for listening. And this is a production of the DSR Network. Our executive producer is Chris Cotnor and our wonderful producer for these episodes are Grant Haver. And our next episode will be in your podcast feeds on October 6th. See you then.